The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome you to Porch Talk. This is your host, Alan. And if you have not caught part one with Jeff Smith, it is the episode before this one that spends more time with early life and beginning of Star Massey. This is more Star Massey specific from 2003 up to now. You have uh, Nick Redman and Jeremy Stanfield coming in the picture and you'll see it coming as uh, just a brotherhood of songwriters. And uh, Jeff described it as being a lifeboat. So the guys, as I was making trips up to make these podcasts, one question that immediately come up with meeting them, so you know Ryan Munson. Yeah, how'd that start? Well, it was through a haircut. Uh, a friend was giving me a haircut, and I was giving my gripes about the garbage beard oils I was using, and she's like, you don't know Munson and Brothers? You don't know Ryan Munson? He's in Columbus. Makes great stuff. And uh, by the way, you should have him on the podcast. It'd be a cool story. We did that. And uh, me and Ryan hit it off. And you can check out all that he has to offer at MunsonandBrothers.com. And you can also see a Porch Talk tab to where we got some merchandise on there as well. There's a plug. So we're going to get on with the show. We're going to play you a song called Number One. Do, 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 do. 
So after the CD came out, I remember one night after all this, you know, little release show happened. We were done, and we were driving to. Nick was living in living in Scenic Hills, in Raleigh, in Fraser, and uh, we were driving in I think one of our cars. And Nick mentions like, "Man, we should go on tour." And we're like, and I was like, "Really?" It's like, "How do you go about doing that?" And they were, and everyone was like, "I don't know. Let's just do it." And then. You know, I remember Josh and Nick taking their shirts off in their car and like getting really amped up about it. I'm like the one driving, so I can't do that. Yeah. And so I was like, at that time, I was like, I was scared to death. I was like, that's, you know, I had a, you know, I was had a job. I, was, I think I was painting houses at the time with my dad. And I had a, my own apartment, and I was like, I needed to pay bills. Yeah. And so I was like, and I had animals too. I had a dog and two cats. And I was like, well, how the hell am I going to make this work? And it's like, but we made it work. We started Curry. Our lovely knight in shining armor producer engineer guru man started became the 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 uh, interim booking agent for Star Micey. So I remember him and I sitting in Ardent's uh, workshop. He had a computer, I had a computer, and we had a list. We would just go through different cities. We mapped out a like circle. you know yeah basically a, a tour map, and we just you know looked up. You know, this is like in the infancy of Facebook and MySpace. So it was like, I mean, those were still around. So like, there wasn't really a <coughs> platform to find music venues. So we had to like do a lot of like hardcore searching. Yeah. So I remember we mapped out our first tour and went down to New Orleans, and then you know hugged the uh, the Gulf Coast, and then would go up to um, Missouri, and then cut over to Indiana and Illinois, and Illinois, and then in west or west or east tennessee and kentucky and then back to so like this kind of like just circle like that never done anything like this yeah and i don't know if nick told you the story about when you know our first tour happened about him going he got into a fist fight with his old roommate and his old roommate pressed charges against him and basically you know just long story short you know nick was due to be in court for this trial, for this, you know, this thing, it was a whole mess. Nick was, you know, basically defending him and his girlfriend. His ex-roommate was a complete, just, you know, an a-hole, horrible yeah. person. Filed charges against Nick for this fight that happened. And Nick's court case, his court date was the same date we were leaving for tour, our first tour. It could have gone two ways. A, he could have, like, been, you know... Incarcerated. Incarcerated. B... He'd go free. And, like, we had planned this tour. We had all the shows booked. It was, like, all this thing. Curry and I, like, booked our very first tour, and we're like, this is it. And I, I had bought our very first tour van, and her name was Velma. It was a 98 Astro van. <laughs> it was a piece of garbage. And we had a trailer we bought, and it was a piece of garbage trailer. It was a 5x8, like, trailer that barely ran. Or So... We were loaded up, everything, and it was funny. Like the last minute, the guy that pressed charges against Nick didn't show up, so the court, the, so the case was thrown dismissed. out, dismissed. Dismissed. Yeah. Nick got in the van, and we took off to Jackson, Mississippi. It was the craziest thing, and it was like so like nerve wracking knowing this is like, man, this is gonna be awful if we have to cancel this. So, anyways, we're getting our newly christened van Velma and Louise that was the name of our rig our van and trailer <laughs> and we 
you know, we're playing all these like little coffee shops and little bars and like basically making peanuts, like, you know, making anything and basically making our first tour, we made all the wrong mistakes, you know, all the mistakes, yeah. it's, you know, because you have to learn from them. So, you know, we slept in, you know, ditches and slept in the van and slept on weird people's floors. And it's funny, uh, we actually got Ardent to pay Ryan Munson to go out on tour with us as our first tour manager to help us get through these three weeks, a three-week tour, a tour, I mean, we never have been on tour, none of us. And I remember Ryan, I mean, he's never was a tour a tour manager before. And <laughs> yes, he was like, it was funny. all new, but he was, a, you know, he was good at that stuff. And he was, his go-to was Curry, and Curry was like a no BS kind of dude. And like, Ryan was, I remember, so scared to like, keep Curry posted about all the crap that happened. And... It was, it all ended up fine. No one, you know, lost a limb or nothing have, ever happened, but like that was bad. But, you know, we definitely had some, that very first tour, it was like, when was it? It was, uh, it was 09. Uh, it was summer of 09. So, um, I, yeah, so it was like late summer. It was like September 2009. Yeah. Because the release show happened in like August or. No, I'm sorry. The first tour was sept- into September, early October. Our release show was a few weeks before that. Yeah. So we uh, were, you know, we're going on the road in our van. I remember it was sucked about the very first tour we ever did. Um, somehow our the the trailer lights to our you know to our trailer when they were hooked up to the the uh, the uh, the uh, the trailer. Uh, hitch to our van is like the light pin it's like when they were hooked up to the van it killed our cd player so we had no music that entire tour and we didn't know that it just died i was like this is crap and we had a cd player i mean we had no way to listen to music this entire tour three week tour didn't listen to anything just us talking for three weeks and ryan oh god it was so bad uh, it was just, I, I for, man, I forgot. I mean, we had a cooler in the van, and Josh always had pickles and tuna and open it up in there and just like make the van smell awful. Um, we played all the weirdest shows, met all the weirdest people, and made some of the most you know incredible friendships we are, we still have to this day yeah. down on the Gulf Coast, and got into a lot of trouble and got out of a lot of trouble, and then we started doing this regular touring because you know we had this record we had to promote so you know after that three-week ordeal it's like well let's do it again and we did it again and did it again and i remember it was um december of 2009 we were coming back from our third or third tour yeah Mm -hmm. and our buddy jeremy stanfill his band had unfortunately just broken up Uh band of like 12, 15 years. I mean, like his band, his, his bloodline, basically. A band that Josh and I had admired and looked up to in our early days of playing. Crippled Nation, they were called Crippled Nation, then became the United, then became Streetside Symphony. Like this band, like we worshiped the ground they walked on. Right. And Jeremy uh, was really good friends with Bonnie, Josh's sister. And that's like, back in those days, like, and Jeremy would like, you know, say hi to us and get to know us or hang out with us. It was like, a, that was a big deal for us. Right. And, you know, he was like, I mean, Cripple Nation was like on an altar you couldn't touch. It was like they sold out the Daisy every time they played. They had a, about had a major label deal with Maverick Records, same record label that Deftones was on. I mean, they were, they were destined for greatness and then mm-hmm. it all fell apart. 
So anyways, fast forward, you know, through his career and then into where he comes into Star of I remember his band had broken up in New Orleans. It was a bad breakup. Comes back home. And we were coming back from our friend Grace Saski was opening up for us a few shows down the Gulf. And we were coming back and we had, were playing St. Louis. We had two shows in St. Louis. I remember we were like, well, you know, and we were staying in constant contact with Jeremy because he was our friend. And he was like really good friends with us from like the playing the you know, rider in the round thing at Neil's. Uh-huh. And so we, you know, kept up with him. And we found out his band broke up and we're like driving back. We're like, hey, let's see if Jeremy wants to come with us to St. Louis for the hell of it. It was like right before New Year's. Mm-hmm. And we called Jeremy up and he was like, you know, do I have time to take a shower? And we're like, yeah, man, we'll be in Memphis in like an hour. It's like, okay, cool. We go by his house, pick up Jeremy, he gets his guitar, he opens up for us in St. Louis at a coffee shop called Mocha Bees, and then at Cicero's. And now, at the time, y'all were on, y'all didn't know that he played drums, right? No, I had no idea he played drums. We just knew he was just an incredible songwriter. Yeah. I've only seen him as a songwriter. Yeah. And a guitar player. And a piano player. So I had no idea. So then Jeremy, you know, he got in the van with us, and we did it up, and we just had a blast. We, you know, just party every night, stay in weird hotels, and, you know, and just and write songs together and then started doing that pretty regularly and then every tour we'd go out on we'd bring him with us he'd open up the show and then like kind of play with us on some songs and you know this is when we were touring the gulf coast pretty heavy and after that happened um you know we started we developed this bond this songwriting bond and this brother bond between all four of us we're like this is this feels right this is the nucleus this is yeah and this is before we knew Jeremy played drums and it was like just us all four of us being together we knew it was the right thing and you know that was like when we started you know at this point we got a new tour van we got a uh a uh, blue GMC rally van from like it was a 1987 GMC rally van his name was Uncle P Nice. And it was a monster van, and we loved it. And so we were driving around this van, drive, you know, touring around the Gulf Coast and everywhere else. And like that's when the song "Cold Hard Truth" came about, and all these other songs started coming about. And we started like developing these really strong friendships with people on the Gulf Coast, and like our friends the Dewitts, who we're still very close with today. It's this beautiful family down in the Gulf. Bay St. Louis became our home, and. It wasn't until we got back to Memphis after this string of dates between the end of 2009 and the beginning of 2010, we were, I remember at one point, you know, because Jeremy was also trying to do his own thing as well. He started writing his own stuff again, like on his own and had a band. And I remember we were playing on a street corner down in South Main. I think it was like the Art Walk or something like that or Trolley Night, whatever it was. It was just Josh, myself, and and Nick and I remember we were just playing these songs and this guy comes up and he's like hey it's like you guys mind if I play play some with you and I was like sure and he was like an accordion player his name was Adam Woodard and he started playing accordion with us and on this set and we were like this is a pretty cool different thing and um, this is when Nick started really getting into the band Gogo Bordello you know it's this gypsy punk folk band that has like you know fiddle and has accordion and has like it's very much you know train beat oriented bump 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 you know songs like that and then his whole songwriting persona started like warping towards that 
and then this is when this whole thing came about. You know, I remember being in Ardent Studio C again, and we were just rehearsing. And we, you know, I brought in my my drum kit, which I have in there, for just to have. And Jeremy said I can play. You know, told us he can play drums, and didn't know he can. I thought he was just saying it, and that's when he I heard him play drums for the first time. Where I was like, "What the fuck, man!" It's like you're kidding me. It's like this is you're you're saying you don't play drums, and you can you just play drums better than anyone I've ever heard in my life. And holding it's back, like, yeah, he's holding back because he was he started off as a drummer, unbeknownst to us. Yeah. His entire past few, you know, like year and a half, two years of us like touring together almost never mentioned it <laughs> yeah never mentioned it thanks a lot man you're watching us suffer out here playing a three-piece foot percussion garbage <laughs> working hard working hard <laughs> and then he showed up and he started doing that and then i was like this is really cool we're on to this new like weird thing that we were doing and i remember we got a friend of ours named jesse munson involved she was a violinist for the symphony and she wanted to be in a band and we Formed this new six-piece Star and Micey band with it. It was Nick on acoustic and vocals, Josh on banjo and vocals. They would switch off. Jesse and and Adam were uh, violin and accordion, and they play all the lead parts. Jeremy on drum, I'm on uh, bass and vocals. He was on vocals too. And we had this weird gypsy thing that happened. So yeah. this record that we just put out, they, like the songs we were doing, did not reflect that record. It was like a complete night and day thing. It's like Into the Night and that stuff. Yeah, Back to the Night, Crazy Jean. Uh, we even had a song called Gogo Bordello. Um, songs like uh, Favorite Song. Um, God, what else? Mike Tyson was another song we had. Um, and all these other, like, just train beat songs, you know? That's what we called them. And so we started, and that's when we started doing like this this show, like this, like all these antics, like Nick would do backflips, we had confetti, yeah. you know, it was like, you know, we'd all dress up as pirates, it was like, and then we, you know, we started playing around Memphis a lot, you know, people started like really latching onto this weird thing that we were doing. Yeah, and, uh, when I recorded with Nick, he took me down to um, the bar, there was a punk show going on that night, just down the road from his house, it's where y'all... Um, they charge so much if you plug into the soundboard, but if you go acoustic, oh yeah, no rule. Young Avenue Sound, uh, or no, sorry, Young Avenue Deli. Yeah, yeah, because that's right by his house. Yeah, no, not the Deli. No, it no, wasn't the Deli. No. Oh no, it was uh, Murphy's. Murphy's. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. Because we we wouldn't play, we wouldn't use. Yeah, we're just PA. around the pool table. Yeah, that was actually before the uh, the big, you know, the antics. Uh, that was around the same time we were doing the three piece thing, but. We did do a show like that. I was like, well, you know what? We're not going to use your PA because we're not. We don't have. We're not making any money. Yeah. So we were in the pool room with like 10, 15 other people just doing our own show. Yeah. That was cool. So after that all happened, um, as during the like the six piece thing, you know, we we're touring pretty consecutively, and then we had our very first like West Coast tour. We we're going to California. Um, we booked a two week tour there and back. And this is towards the end of our like foray as like the six piece thing. And before this tour, we had gotten into Ardent and recorded for a week straight like forty songs live, like all these song ideas. We just hold up in Studio C, and basically just all day, all night, would record these songs. And you know, they were they, nothing ever happened of them. I think we recorded some different other versions of them eventually, but. You know, so we had like this group block of songs, but the higher ups didn't want to do anything with them. They're just like, yeah. we want another record like 
you guys just put out. I was like, well, we're not that band anymore. It's funny. It's like every time we would record something, we were we were already past it. So like, and, you know, this will go into like the I Can't Wait EP, which I'm, I'll get to in a second. Like we're always like just a step ahead of the, the recording that we just made, which is always, I think that event, you know, would eventually shoot us in the foot um, as far as like having a product that fully represented who we were. Our live band never represented our recorded material, at least the stuff that we released. So, you know, after that recording session, Jesse left the band uh, because she just didn't want to be in it anymore. And then we told Adam that we didn't want him to be in there anymore. And so it was just back to the four of us. And then actually Jeremy wanted to pursue his songwriting more. So he bounced. So it became the three of us again. Yeah. This is like 2000, uh, like late 2011, mid late 2011. And I remember just back to the drawing board, me, Josh and Nick. We're like, well shit, I guess we're going back to it. And a guy by the name of Dennis Herring, he was a recording engineer, famous recording engineer producer down in Oxford, Mississippi, had a studio called Sweet Tea and really wanted to record Star and Mycie and it was trying to get a hold of us for over a year Mm. contacting Ardent constantly and and people there just dumb and weren't paying attention and it just fell through the cracks and I remember one night we were playing in Oxford just the three of us and Dennis Herring came up to us and we're like hey I've been trying to get a hold of you guys for like this amount of time we're like we had no idea he's like well I want to record you guys and I want you to come by my studio and check it out. So we went over to Sweet Tea, and it was like the such a cool studio. It was like yeah. Vibe City. It wasn't anything like Arden. Arden's like super slick. Like everything is like teak wood. You know, Sweet Tea looked like where like vampires would record at. It was like it was hip. You know, it was like <laughs> you know it was this weird different colors and like really cool vibe to it. Yeah. And so this started this relationship with Dennis Herring, and Dennis Herring wanted us to you know record uh we wanted to record an ep with them so ardent signed off on it we did it we hold up an ardent for or not ardent sweet tea for it was like recorded between like the fall of 2011 to like spring of 2012 so it was like it but he because he had so many projects in between you know he had bigger acts so we but it's so this is how long it took to record four songs with him it's like we'd do a, a song and then wouldn't see him for like a month or two and then do it again. But these songs would take like, you know, we would drive from Memphis to Oxford every day and then go back an hour and a half drive. Mm-hmm. It was exhaust, exhausting. And he was a very demanding producer. He was really hard to deal with. Um, and at one point I remember him telling us, is like this wasn't what he signed up for because it was just the three of us. We didn't have a full band. He's like, when I saw you guys, you had a full band. Mm-hmm. And now you just come to me with the three of you. And it's like, how are we going to do this? So we basically, we you know built drum tracks out of nothing, out of like percussion stuff that I would come up with with him or stomps and claps or something like that. We didn't have a drummer on that EP. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Love was just us putting stuff together like kick drum and snare like just it was everything was basically comped or piecemealed together um and, and then i can't wait was as well but you know but us to us you know this you know little ep would go on to become like a very big thing for us so when that record happened you know after we recorded with dennis herring and then we had to go through the entire process and like this at this point our relationship with ardent studios was starting to sour you know, we've been with them for a few years now, and they weren't living up to their side of the bargain. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to really name any names. That's uh, fine, man. But, yeah. you know, the, the people that were running the show there were, you know, very... Uh, they weren't, you know... I mean, they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. Everything in the contract... The contract that we had signed was an awful contract. We didn't have any lawyers present. It was a very awful deal. And we basically signed away our publishing without know, knowing it. And they were pretty sneaky about it, even though they said, well, you could have had, have had a lawyer present, blah, blah, blah. We were very impressionable young kids. We didn't know what we were doing. And so once I Can't Wait finally started, when it finally got done recorded and mixed and mastered, which took forever to get done, then, you know, we were just our first time getting, like, vinyl printed up. So we had this whole campaign of getting vinyl printed up, like colored vinyl, different. Yeah. Karen went to work and did all these different art covers for all these special releases on vinyl. It was cool because we never had a you know a record come out on vinyl. So it was on it, and I still have a, uh, I have a, actually have a test pressing over there in that box. It's, it's, it's a 10-inch 45. So it's basically what a 10-inch would be a 78, but it's a 10-inch uh, disc at 45 RPM. You know, 12 inches, 33 and a third. Usually 45s are 7 inch. Yeah. So it's actually a 10 inch 45. Yeah. Uh, so it's got to turn that slow to. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, I I mean, there's copies of it all over the place, but I'm, I think I'm the only one that has a test pressing of the blue I Can't Wait record that United Record Pressing in Nashville did. So when this record came out in October of 2012, I believe, and that's when. Um, I started the whole process over like we're gonna do a big CD release show and uh, we still weren't really a band um, we uh, you know Jeremy got back on board and started playing with us a little bit more and he uh, we I remember he played the release show we had at the high tone you know and we it sold out packed the place out it was like 400 people and there was nuts old location or now location? the old the old okay. one we never played the new one and um, so when this record came out, you know, we had this big release show. Everyone was there. It was nuts. I mean, we it, the entire stage was the front of our album cover. It was a carnival, like carnival tents. And we all, you know, pitched in and helped build this set. It was extremely impressive. It was wild. And, you know, Jeremy was playing drums with us. And it was like, you know, we had you know, invited Jesse to come play violin with us and so it was like a big show. It was like the release of this of this EP, and we had all this merchandise. We had vinyl records. We had T-shirts. We had posters. I mean, it was, and we had our first record too. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. And this was like you know we were just building all this momentum, and like Star Mice at this point in 2012 had become like a pivotal Memphis band. It was like you know it, we finally got there, and. Um, I remember we were starting our, it was called the Soul Storming Tour, and we had like this whole pledge music campaign behind it, and it was, we were going on the road with our friends Carolina Story, who we had met in 2011, and those, those became our like, our road warrior tour buddies for like years, about mm-hmm. four or five years. We toured with them consecutively. It was just, because it was just Ben and Emily Roberts, just a duo, and, and we were just like obsessed with them. And, and vice versa and we you know we and Ben was very much you know driven to you know as far as that band goes like did all the booking all the managing and all that stuff and him and I hit it off really well in that aspect because I became the interim tour manager booking agent all that stuff 
because Curry eventually just he didn't have the time to do it anymore, so it fell on my shoulders. Which was fine, so I took on all those responsibilities. That's the hardest working band, right? God, man, it was a lot. Whatever it, it was, takes. Yeah, and, and a lot, and I lost out, lost out on a lot of fun too because of that stress. But anyway, so once this, you know, you know, EP I can't wait came out, um, we went on our you know, another really big tour to support this record, and Jeremy had gotten sick. He had to go to the hospital. It was the day, the morning of the tour, and we were like. And we don't know. I mean, even during our release show, he was like so ill. He was like he was fighting himself to play the show, and we had no idea what was wrong with him. So he went to the hospital, and they're like, "All right, well, we're coming back through Memphis to do this NPR thing at Ardent, so we'll pick you up on the way back." And so we had to re we had to remember how to do all the three piece stuff again, mm-hmm. like at the drop of a dime. Like I had to go and like collect and buy more of that three piece stuff. And like basically reassemble, <laughs> reassemble, and do this re- released record without a drummer. We're in the same boat we were in with the first record. We're promoting a record that we can't reflect re- reflect <laughs> the right way. It was outrageous. It was like we we're we we're living this nightmare again. It was so heartbreaking. So we had to you know do this whole tour. And Carolina Story was with us, and God bless them. They were like saviors. And they helped us get through this whole thing. And unfortunately, Emily and Ben are not drummers, and we wish they were. Um, <laughs> so we did this whole three-piece thing, and this is the first time. Uh, this wasn't the first time we were going to New York, but it's the first. We were supposed to play in New York. It was like our first Northeast tour. We were oh, going yeah. to like, you know, hit the Northeast hard in the Midwest. And we had a huge. We had a started having a really big following in Chicago and like all these other places and. Uh, so I remember we were about to go to New York, and no, we were coming back from Texas to the NPR show in Ardent, at Ardent, and we were expecting Jeremy to come with us, and Jeremy was still in the hospital. He couldn't make it. We're like, fuck, okay. So we just continued without him, and this is like, that was about two or three weeks into the tour. This is like a, almost a two-month-long tour we were doing. Mm-hmm. And then that entire time, unbeknownst to us, Jeremy had contracted. He was in the hospital for six weeks and had contracted lupus. Uh, and this is like a disease that, you know, it's, it's an autoimmune disease where your body fights itself, basically. It's the reverse of what AIDS is. And, you know, he was, like, gaunt. He almost, I mean, he lost so much weight. It was, like, the scariest I've ever seen one of my friends in a situation like that. It was heartbreaking. So, anyways, we do the tour, and we're supposed to go to New York for the very first time, and that's when Hurricane Sandy hit northeast completely shut everything down up there we were in outside of we were in the middle of Pennsylvania when this happened and we were I remember calling my uncle Jeff who lives in Long Island is like should we we're supposed to play Rockwood Music Hall iconic place in New York and they're like it's like should we drive there he's like he told me he's like you cannot get gas anywhere in this near the city it's like even if you could you there's not a chance you can get gas enough to get outside you'd of the city stranded. you'd be stranded he's like don't do it it's like okay so I called the music venue and they said, dude, we haven't had power for a week. It's like, so yeah, we're canceling all the shows around this area. So we had to cancel quite a bit around that area. And so we didn't know what to do. So we just kind of palled around the Northeast a little bit and then, you know, avoiding that area and then getting back down to the South. And then after that tour, um, I think Jeremy, once he got well again, 
was and this at this point we were hitting like starting to be a regulars at South by Southwest down in Austin and the Folk Alliance in uh, Kansas City and in Memphis. We we're like those are the two things we hit up every year. Mm-hmm. And South by Southwest was like our bread and butter. We would do we would book whole tours around it because we'd be there the entire week. And um, so this was end of 2012. And then I think it was in the beginning of 2013, we had, uh, the Folk Alliance had moved to Toronto, Canada for a year. And so we were accepted to go there. Uh, Lewis Myers was the owner of, was the creator of um, the Folk Alliance, along with one of the founders of South by Southwest. And he, I think he personally invited us to come back to Folk Alliance. Mm-hmm. So we did. And this, you know, Jeremy was a lot better by the, by this point. But, you know, he was definitely had his... Um, his illness he had to deal with so we were you know starting to tour as a full band again and I remember we got get up to Toronto and uh, do our showcase and have some more showcases we're up there with Carolina Story again as well it's the first time we ever been to Canada outside the United States so that was a really big deal for us to like get all the all of our passports in order get everything all the you know necessary things to be able to go to a different country that was pretty stressful you know we had just bought a new tour van is a uh, 2009 Chevy Express. Uh, we had it for about a year before we went up there, so it was like we had reliable transportation, a good trailer, so we had like a like a, a badass touring rig and a new trailer, new van, so we were like set. Changing the look. Changing the look, man. And we finally get up to we get up to Toronto uh, in February of 2013, and we end up meeting uh, a girl by the name of uh, Kirby uh, uh, Demares. And she was uh, a freelance manager. Uh, she was managing a band called Gangster Grass at the time, which was a hip hop bluegrass band. Yeah, uh, and they were very popular. Uh, they uh, they had a song. There, the intro to that show. Um, what is justified? So they had a hit. Mm-hmm. Anyways, they were a big band, and um, we. Uh, Got met. We met up with her, and she really liked Star Micey. And um, next thing you know, she was like wanting to, to work more with us, and we agreed to do that because you know I was tired of being that guy, the manager of doing everything. And then she introduced us to a gentleman by the name of Mark Lowry, who it was a booking agent for a company called Skyline Music, based out of uh, New Hampshire, and they were like you know had some pretty big acts on their roster. They were a big booking agency and they he, they he listened to Star Micey and loved us and he was like I really want to work with Star Micey but you know we don't you know booking agents, agents don't typically work with bands that don't have like a legit manager or a legit label and stuff like that it's like fair enough and it just so happened in this week time span a gentleman by the name of David Macias the owner of 30 Tigers in Nashville one of the largest uh folk Americana record labels in the world was there and heard Star and Micey and loved it yeah. and was obsessed with it and he heard like an, he heard this like broke down acoustic version of what we were doing and like it's coming around to like this the, the next thing is like signing up for something that you didn't expect it to be um, so with that being said with Kirby Mark and Dave and David was you know on board. He really liked us, and the only problem is, you know, we we're still signed with Ardent, 
Uh, and that was a big thorn in our sides. It was like we had complete at this point completely distanced ourselves from Ardent. We wouldn't even set foot in the building. We hated that place so much because of how they were treating us as as a band. It was awful. I mean, we were just like just very poisonous relationships happening. They fired uh, Curry Weber, our you know longtime everything guy. The only for, guy that was working for you. Yeah, there. basically, and he wasn't even he was a recording engineer, not a an A and R rep for their label. He was doing everything that they were supposed to do, and they they didn't, and they fired him, and that was like that was it. So that artist that that uh, relationship was dead and so the problem was now was that we were assigned with, on this label that would not let us go for whatever reason they're just gonna sit on you yeah they're just gonna sit on us and like make us miserable and 30 Tigers David Maceus got involved and we had lawyers involved to get Staramycee to where we can make a record with 30 Tigers and this was all. This started happening in early 2013, and you know all this stuff. This took a long time, such a long time. And finally, like I mean, mid like late this time. What, what about your creativity? Oh, we were still writing songs like nonstop, and we we're touring nonstop as like all this stuff was happening. So after the the Toronto the week in Toronto in 2013, we went back to two thousand uh, to uh, South by Southwest, and blew it out of the water um so there wasn't no sense of just it's drying up it's yeah it was just it was you know it was like that aspect was figuring it out while the the create creative aspect was just like 100 it was non-stop it didn't yeah. stop at all and with this point we were like seasoned touring musicians we were our fan bases in new orleans and chicago were really big and a few other key spots um, Memphis we had on lockdown I mean we we were selling out shows left and right in Memphis and our, we started you know and then we, we had a legit booking agent we started asking for more money our guarantees went up so that was really nice and um, I remember that was the last year we played South, South by Southwest when we came back from Toronto we immediately went down to, in March to South by Southwest and that was the last year we played South by Southwest and we, we played 16 shows in 4 days Wow, it was outrageous and we became one of the buzz bands for uh, South by Southwest that year. And it was huge. I mean, uh, Mark Lowry was there, our booking agent, our new booking agent, and a bunch of other industry folks. And, you know, that's when this ball started rolling and we started booking bigger shows like Philadelphia Folk Fest and um, other and opening up for bands like Dawes and the Black Keys and stuff like that. So there was like this unreal stuff was happening while we're trying to figure out the next step to recording a record. Because I can't wait the EP. That's the only thing that's out, and it's like now we have Jeremy back in the fray full time, and I can't wait was recorded without a drummer. <laughs> so it's like okay, now we got this record. More misrepresentation. Exactly. <laughs> and so all of 2013 was like that was like our cusp. I mean, we we have just crested over that hill. I mean, we're selling out shows. We were playing big ticket shows and huge and big venues and like. Stuff that I have never seen before, never thought in a million years I'd be able to do. I mean, we're like, oh yeah, we had all of our instruments in like big road cases and moving it all around. We had a, and, you know, this is when we started uh, working with Thirty Tigers, and then now we had a legit uh, manager. Uh, Ashley Wilcoxon was our manager for Thirty Tigers. David Maceus was as well, as he was working out all these kinks with Arden. So all this stuff started happening, like all this 
responsibility started being lifted off of me and the rest of the band where this other network of label, booking agent, and manager can figure it all out. Finally had people behind you. Yes. And that was great. And this was and like, you know, we're doing all these really cool tours. We're going to Canada. We're playing in Montreal, playing in New York, and like going to cool studios to visit, like Dreamland in New York, and upstate New York, Levon Helms Studio. And like doing all this really cool stuff and like touring incessantly and playing all these gigs. And I mean, at that, and then we started talks for the new record um, to record. And, and because we had all this momentum behind us. So it came time to figure out what to do with the next record. And uh, so we decided on uh, a guy named Mark Neal down in Valdosta, Georgia. And Val and uh, Mark Neal's claim to fame, big claim to fame, was Black Keys Brothers' record, which is like their biggest record. Mm-hmm. And it's my he, favorite one. Yeah, it's incredible. That. He also did the old '97s, J. Roddy Walston, J.D. McPherson. He, he did some pretty big ticket records, and we loved the way his record sounded. It's like he had a studio in Valdosta, Georgia, down in like, you know, like the Florida line, the Florida right. state line, like down there, and so. Talks started happening with Mark Neal, and he really liked our stuff and really wanted to work with us, and we agreed, and 30 Tigers agreed to pay for the record. I think the whole record costs like around $70,000 or something ridiculous like that, and Mark Neal got like 30 of it, something, something like that. Maybe, I don't know the specifics. So anyways, we go down there and record uh, this record. We spend a month have a month to record this record with Mark Neal and you know the first week you know we are just you know the first few days we are kind of like you know feeling it all out Mark was like you know I love Mark Neal to death and he uh, he was kind of you know it was really hard to work with because he was you know always you know we always had to listen to records before we played and like it was like very demanding and we were in this small studio and we couldn't go anywhere in the town we didn't know we didn't have any money so we started getting a little very stir crazy and then we go on to record this record without a drummer again and Jeremy was such a you know a creative input for our band it's like and basically it's like the same thing with I Can't Wait and the record before that the self release is like now we're having to do everything ourselves again mm-hmm. and figure it all out but the problem is when we did all this it's like all these songs that we're recording, it's like they weren't like the way we wanted them to, to be. Because prior to this record being made, we had recorded a bunch of demos with Curry at our practice space. Uh, and they were like the, I think, the best representation of Star Mice ever to date, record wise or recording wise. I mean, everything was done live and we did, you know, some overdubs and it was like, it was, it was legit. It sounded great. And I still love those demos. And, a lot of those demos made it onto the Get Them Next Time record. It just, it fell short. It's like, I think at that point, we were so ready for a record to be done. I think we convinced ourselves like, yes, this is it. You know, we now, because we had to get behind it. It was like, all this money has been spent. This record has been cut. But after this 2013 stint of us like just crushing it, and then we went in to record this record, it took a year and a half for it to come out. Like 2016, this record, Get Up Next Time was recorded from November 1st to November or December 1st, 2014. The record didn't come out until March of 2016. Because of all of this legality bullshit between Ardent and 30 Tigers. And like, and then we eventually, I think 2015 was like, 
we almost got involved with Justin Timberlake uh, because he really loved the song I Can't Wait. It, they played it at all the Grizzlies games for like that entire season. Yeah. Just it was part of the Memphis Conventional Visit Convention Visitors Bureau, like their tourism commercial. So I Can't Wait it was like their theme song. Yeah. Justin Timberlake heard that song, loved it, wanted to be a part of Star in My Seat. But and that Arden. whole thing happened. <laughs> Good old Arden. Yeah, I know, right? And like Artie kept dragging their feet and like it was just it was a nightmare and like and then Justin Timberlake's camp wasn't syncing up with us and like the whole thing was like there was all this really cool excitement for like a few months about this potential of like being like hanging out with Justin Timberlake and like him promoting Star of Micey like that's a big deal mm -hmm. and then it just all just fell through so it's all this momentum just comes to a screeching halt of us just like just killing it and we had kind of a, a rude awakening when two of the owners of Ardent studios died John Fry and John Hampton and that was like a big wake up call for us of like just you know not like holding the people that you love closer to you and so it's like and, and when I think about it it's like if like in Star and Micey would have gotten big in 2013 it's like that band like the inner the inner workings of that band were like so like just toxic like everybody was dealing with so much crap like it was awful it sucked sounds awesome almost better if it didn't yeah you know i'm i'm but you know you know, woulda coulda shoulda you know um you know everything happens for a reason so anyways after all this stuff happened in 2015 and or nothing happened in 2015 finally all this stuff started coming to a close this records finally going to be released our first full length vinyl get them next time we do all this we do music videos for it we do all this whole pledge can pledge music campaign again for like tour support because you know we didn't we all the touring that we have ever done we've never had support for it's always come out of our pocket or somebody's been generous enough to you know, donate some money to us other than that we've not had like legit tour support from any label because I, mean, I mean that's just unheard of now so when the record Finally, it was coming. It was starting to come out. We had this big, like, month-long tour behind Get 'Em Next Time, going from Memphis all the way up to the Northeast and crossing over the Midwest, and then back down through there into back into Memphis. And I remember, Wes, uh, Thirty Tigers was going to hire Shorefire Media, the biggest, one of the biggest publish or PR companies in the world. I mean, huge. It's like a $16,000 campaign for four months for this record. $16,000 is outrageous. Mm -hmm. And that was in the budget for this record. And it was really, you know, the record came out in March of 2016. And was, we, during this whole month-long tour, we, you know, we would get weekly. So this is the first tour we've done in a while because, you know, we were sitting on all this crap. Yeah. You know, this record not happening, the JT thing not happening both record labels figuring it out because everyone you know because it was just it was a mess so all this momentum was just came to a screeching halt and then finally you know when the get them next time was going to come out now we had to get behind a record that we were tired of it's like this record should have been out a year ago mm -hmm. it's like now we have to gain like you know be you know enthusiastic and fake sincerity about a record that we were over it's like you're just done with it we didn't want anything to do with it anymore because of everything that went into it and everything that came out of it, which was nothing. It was like, why? Why even? But you had to. You're obligated because now you have this 
extremely expensive record that a record label paid for, you have to promote. So fair enough. So anyways, we're on the road and we're, you know, the entire, you know, and this is nothing against Skyline music at all. We played some great venues on that tour Mm -hmm. to nobody. We were playing these beautiful, like, three, four hundred room cap rooms and theaters to zero people because there, nobody promoted the, the record. It's like Shorefire Media didn't do anything as far as like promotion goes. It's like just show promotion. You know, they tried, I think they were mostly trying to get like the record into like magazines and, you know, airplay and like blogs and stuff. But like every time, like they would send a weekly progress report and every progress report I saw was. You know, Rolling Stone, pass. Billboard, pass. American Songwriter, pass. Um, you know, Mojo, we'll give it a listen. You know, it's like it, everything was pass, 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 pass. Yeah. This record came out in March 2016. That's like not a good time for a record to come out. Usually summer, fall, it was good times for records to come out. So we were just like, and then it was like, and we shouldn't have, we should have gone back to South by Southwest and like crushed it at South by. But instead we went Northeast and went Midwest, did this weird tour around there where we should have just stayed in the South industry, South by Southwest with a new record with 30 Tigers behind it. It would have been a lot, probably a lot more successful of a tour. <coughs> I think the only show that was worth anything on that tour was, uh, it was, if, weirdly enough, it was the night of our album release date. It was March 11th, 2016. We were in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, playing at Milk Boy, this venue that was upstairs, and I remember we were coming back from Boston after playing to, like, four people. It was very much of a letdown, and we are having to, like, race to get to to this, to Philly from Boston, and, like, all the traffic around New York is just horrendous. Mm-hmm. So we're like running a little bit behind. Stress levels are high. I remember that day we find out that our friend Lewis Myers, the creator of Folk Alliance and South by Southwest, died. And so that that's on our heads, thinking about that the entire time. So that was horrible. He passed away. And so, you know, we're dealing with that as we're, you know, getting back, you know, finally getting into Philly, deal with the load in and everything. And I remember we played the show and, we, you know, we've, Played the Philadelphia Folk Fest two years prior to like, I think seven thousand people. It was outrageous, and then uh, this time around playing, you know, I didn't expect anything because the tour has been just just awful the entire time as far as attendance goes. That was the best show we ever played attendance wise. That entire tour is like four or five hundred people in that room. I don't know why or how or the what reasons why they were there, but they were there, and it was I don't know what kind of a a universal thing happened that night but like for it to be on our album release day for that show to happen it was great it kind of put the wind back in our sails for a minute after we left the the east coast we headed west towards chicago and played some shows along the way and they weren't so good chicago was okay and then i remember we got to des moines iowa and we played at uh, uh vaudeville muse this venue there and to very little people and we were really tired at this point. It was like three weeks into the tour. We had one week left. I remember we got to Iowa City, Iowa, and played a place called Gabe's Oasis. I'll never forget. And the venue didn't even know what we were that we were coming. They just they didn't know. They were like, "Well, we're here to play." It's like it's on your calendar, and like a sound guy's like, "Oh, oh, um, 
well, I got another show I'm doing upstairs. Can you just run your own sound down here? And I'm like, it's like, and that's when I was like, I looked at Jeremy, Josh, and Nick. I was like, can we just, what if we just went home? Fuck the rest of this tour. It's like, let's just go home. This is awful. Everything has been awful this entire time. We are losing money at this point. All of us have taken off of work at this point. I've lost, you know, I think we all came back home with like a few hundred bucks each after a month of touring. It was nothing. So what we did after that incident at that venue, I called our manager and our booking agent and said, we're going home. It's like, this is bullshit. And they were... They try to talk us out of it. It's like, no, we made up our minds. This is not. This is not fun anymore. It's like we're we're done. This has been a, a horrible tour, for this release of this album. So we, you know, went to our hotel room. Luckily, we stayed in a good hotel that night. Got you know, woke up, had breakfast, and then drove from Iowa City, Iowa, straight to Memphis, and that was the last big tour we did. Um, after that, we did some few runs here and there, and then. Um, Towards the end of 2016, after this record, um, it didn't do anything. No one, you know, picked it up. No one listened to it. There was a little bit of buzz here and there, but it was it just fell on deaf ears. And so, 30 Tigers in October 2016 dropped us from their label after being on them with them for three years. Mm-hmm. So there goes there, there goes our only opportunity. And shortly after that happened, after the owners of Ardent died, uh, the new person of it was taking control of the record company let us go of our contract finally and you know we were released from them um, unfortunately it's you know I can't wait and our first release publishing they still own but you know we were out of our contract I even have a signed copy or I have a printed I have a signed copy of that exit from that contract in my studio room and so that was like the start of like seeing like all this momentum start my life just come to it basically an end. And it was really sad. It's like we've, you know, worked so hard to, it was, you know, and and saw that all like in within reach and it just like the rug just every time was like ripped out from under us. You know, we all uh started writing more and like coming up with like really cool songs and still playing shows but like just staying locally here I mean so all that started coming to a, a close and we we're all just kind of relieved about it it's like we can't and nowadays it's like we go on the road now it's like we couldn't even fathom doing it it's like A you're not going to make any money B you risk losing a lot now going on the road unless you're A opening up for an established band or B making a lot of money you just can't do it and you know it's like it's it's a young person's game it's like and I admire the people that are my age that are still pounding the pavement playing to a few people every night it's like I can't do that anymore you know I've got a house I've got a wonderful relationship I've got animals Josh now has a son Uh, we all have houses mortgages real jobs so we just can't do that anymore and so after like this whole ride man it's like you know yeah we have a lot of reflection and it's like and a lot of you know you know wish we could have changed stuff but again it's like it's it was you know it was a fun time it was a great ride it's like and i never thought in a million years that i'd ever be able to do what i've done mm-hmm. with star and my or just with music in general and you know i really and I'm, and it's not over but you know i've 
seen how evil the music business is and it's so off-putting and it makes me not even want to just go after it like it's just it's disgusting and like you know how the world is now with like streaming music and it's like how musicians don't make any money off of that and that's just how the world listens to music it's like in my place is very neutral now when it comes to music i love it and i love playing it and i always will but like i don't know i mean i'm not saying if like if something big like ever happens again that we won't you know go after it but it's going to take a lot for us to like rally the forces to like do that kind of thing again Mm -hmm. it's just it's it's not fathomable right now so after all this happened you know we've talked you know on and off about recording the record that we've always wanted to record and it's like I've uh, you know we've always talked about it and we would put the you know gears in motion and then it just would, wouldn't happen you know it would just, just wouldn't have the time or everyone just lives, life got in the way and that seems like that's where it is now that life is like finally caught up to us mm-hmm. which is good maybe it is time for us to kind of just ease let's just take a little bit of a breather and uh, I mean, play shows when we need to write. When we, I mean, we're, we're all better. I think but the great thing is now, which I'll take more than anything, is like morally, the band is better than it ever has been. Yeah. With everyone's collective minds, where everyone's, you know, thinking clearly, str- their bonds are stronger than ever. So it's like, it's funny. It's like how the scales tipped. Like when we were at the height of our, like, you know, full on music career, career it was very toxic it was so much bad things happening and now it's like done this to where like now it's like we have the strongest bond as brothers but our career is basically you know not there's some to none yeah but i'd rather have that you know and that's where basically where star micey is now and that's kind of our ride man it's kind of like you know i mean there's so much more i can i can talk about but that's like that's basically a linear thing of just like how it all happened it's such a very bittersweet tale yeah and I you know and I don't regret anything at all it's like I I you know I wish I could have enjoyed the moment more yeah um and I did a lot not as much as Jeremy Nick and Josh got to but um you know I was focused on making us you know get to the venue on time get there safely make sure everyone had food and money and you know I was looking after my boys you know and I'd do that now anyways without even being on the road so Mm -hmm. it's it's you know it's something that I can say that I've done and I'm super proud that I've done it you know and it's you know and to see how we have all become as musicians and like in our own separate ways and collectively it's extremely impressive yeah. like it's it's amazing no it's just like just from the porch talk aspect of it man it's like finding star Massey on the back end mm-hmm. and um like it's almost i was like man this is great stuff mm-hmm. and then like as getting to know you and uh, the guys mm-hmm. is uh well, they got these other projects that they're a part of, mm-hmm. and like it's not that they're not doing anything. It's sure. just they're doing different projects. Yeah, and the whole thing has grown. Like I like uh, Josh's Black Betty project. Yeah, it's great. And, uh, and Jer- Nikki Red, man, I yeah, like what Nick's doing. Yeah, man. his little synth project. Is, yeah, yeah, it's it's fun. He's he's killing it. I love it. Um, yeah. I'm happy to see him 
to Nick. Happy to see Nick back into his recording creative self because that's what he is, and he is you know a brilliant songwriter, brilliant recording engineer and, produ- and producer, and he deserves that. And I'm glad it's it's like he's bringing that back a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. which is great. And then you know Jeremy is the one of my it, favorite my favorite songwriters are all in my band you know and it's I'm being biased but it's all I'm true it's true it's like Josh Cosby Nick Redman Jeremy Stanfield they're the best songwriters I've ever known mm-hmm. and and I'll fight anyone on it you know and it's true because they're just and it, it makes it so easy for me to be able to collaborate and and help co-write with these guys because it's like it's like the creativity is always there mm-hmm. it's like it just works so well with the four of us and they inspire me to write my own stuff and, and record my own stuff and do something I've never done before because mm-hmm. they're you know such nurturing you know musicians and songwriters that it's like it's you know it's been an absolute honor and pleasure to be able to have worked with them for for so long and to still work with them and who knows what the future holds man i mean look at portugal the man that band was a like pounded the pavement hard for years and had it's you know it puts like, out woodstock and it's like we're here yeah they they had one song that hit and they're all in their late 40s and that one song hit and now you know they're opening for taylor swift it's like Shit like that happens they, all the time. But they've been around, you know? Yeah, like, they've been around for like decades. Wood, Woodstock is like seventh album or something. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's still stories like that. I mean, hell, I mean, I Can't Wait has been streamed on Spotify 1.5 million times. That, to me, is that, that is an accomplishment. I can die happy knowing that I have a song that has been listened to, that I was a part of, help record, uh... And help collaborate with that was rec- that was listened to 1.5 million times all around the world. Yeah, that right there, I can die happy knowing that. And so then all of our other stuff as well. It's like it's it's ex- it's ex- it's extraordinary. So again, will anything else happen? Maybe, sure, absolutely. But you know, as of right now, it's it's nice to have a little bit of a, some breathing room. That's Let a us new ref- chapter, right? yeah, reflect. Learn from what you know. This new year is going to come about, and you know, and just hope that we can, you know, we'll always be friends, and we'll stay, you know, you know, musicians, and always write, co-write, have our own projects, play with other people. You know, I'm in two other bands right now besides Star and Mighty, and it's keeps me busy. So, and it's been nice, and it's like having that other creative outlet's been, you know, really good for me, and also inspired me to, you know get off my ass and start writing my own stuff finish writing my own stuff so but yeah I mean Star of Mice is my my blood sweat and tears man I've got a whole arm <laughs> tattoo wise dedicated to Star of Mice so it's it's it has it been my life since I was 18 years old and I'm 35 now so it's yeah. been how long is that half so, your life 17 yeah, yeah it's, it's been a long yeah, 17 years of that band or in that you know, we're just Josh and me writing music, so yeah, it's it's a career. It, it wasn't you know a famous career or a prosperous career, but it was to me. So, and still is absolutely. So especially yeah. I mean, doing it with your best friend, right? Of course, absolutely. Best friends, yeah, yeah. Nick and Jeremy and Josh. So yeah, 
It ain't. We're just. It's. It'll. It'll. Star Mice. Star Mice will never go away. As Nick says, like we'll just never, just never break up the band. Just always stay together. It's like it doesn't matter if you're if you're playing shows. Who cares? It's like just don't break the band up. Yeah. It's like be a band forever. Doesn't matter. And that's what we intend on doing. If we play a show once a year or record a, a masterpiece and then go on to do stadium tours, bring it on. Yeah. But again, if not cool. If not cool, I mean, we're here, man. We're we're and we're enjoying life and just you know, and it's nice to reflect on to, on everything that we have done. And there, like I said, there's so much more. But as of right now, it's been just. It's nice. I would, like I said, I would take everyone's positivity and morale and sanity and love over, you know, being to where we were at that one point in 2013. Yeah, man. Oh, any day of the week. So, cool. Well, man, uh, let's go ahead and walk this thing out. Anything else to add or subtract before we sign off? Uh, well, no. Um, plug. Well, uh, <coughs> Wealthy West is a band I'm in with my buddy Brandon Kinder and. Two members of the Dead Soldiers and a member of Space Face, and it's like a Memphis supergroup. And I've been a part of that band for a year and a half now, and those are the, some of the most talented sons of bitches I've ever known. And they are such a great aspect of my life musically, and I am honored to be playing with such revered and respected musicians. And Brandon Kinder is one of the most brilliant songwriters I have ever known, and he is just. It's it's a, it's an honor to be able to help recreate what he does. It's and not the first time his name's been brought up. Yeah, I mean Brandon is a. If you meet him, you would never think he's like he just seems like a, just a cool normal dude. But he is, he his grind is unbelievable, and he has made music. You know, it like he is he has made a living off of music and still does, and it's very impressive. And yeah, and I'm very honored to be able to play with him and call him a close friend. And then my band, uh, Lights May Flicker, that's going to be under a different name, but you can find Lights May Flicker on Spotify and uh, Apple Music, and it's a power pop, prog, rock, synth band that I'm really proud of. It's awesome. I think the new project that we're in, I think I'm, we're trying to lean to call it Chain Fight at the Malt Shop, because that's such a great band name and uh, <laughs> it's going to be a really cool different aspect of that so we're kind of we're pretty excited about that project too and also sometime this year I will record my first EP hopefully four or five songs myself and it will probably be under the moniker Geoff Smythe which has always been my <coughs> my alias or my Instagram handle if you will so just my name on it with a different spin but after these years of being with Star Micey and being around such creative musicians you know and being one myself it's like it's time to finally do this and yeah. and and own it own up to it so yeah great man well Jeff thank you so much yeah thanks Alan it's a pleasure news and notes all right, thank y'all so much for listening to Porch Talk. If you haven't done so already, I'd ask that you would rate and review the show. It helps. And tell a friend. Just walk up to him and put it on him. So you don't need to close your eyes for this. Do it. 
All right, uh, go to monsonbrothers.com. We got a tab there for merchandise. 25% off code is Porch Talk. All one word, all caps, like you're screaming about it. Porch Talk. We're going to walk this thing on out the door. We're going to play uh, Get Them Next Time. All right, guys. Peace out. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.